This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Christianity, Esoteric and Exoteric, recorded May 21st, 2000, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, this morning, the question is, what is the relationship between mystical Christianity to Orthodox Christianity? Or, more technically, what is the relationship of esoteric Christianity to exoteric Christianity. And the two terms, exoteric and esoteric, refer to the inner or outer aspects of anything. That doesn't have to be necessarily Christianity or even religion. But exoteric literally means outward, and esoteric means inward. And at least from a mystical perspective, we can look at all religions as having these two aspects. And I've drawn a circle up here to illustrate this. Mystics of all religions say the absolute reality transcends all form. And that includes forms of thought and speech. So it cannot be directly communicated through thought and speech. So... Truly speaking, even mystical teachings are exoteric in nature because they are in form, forms of thought and speech. So this isn't about saying exoteric teachings are bad because that is absolutely necessary. And one way to illustrate this is to look at a circle and to think of the circumference of the circle as the exoteric form <coughs> And if the teaching at the circumference of the circle is pointing to the center, which, truly speaking in uh, geometry, is a dimensionless point, it has no form. Here on the, on the blackboard, I've illustrated it with a, a dimensional point, but it really is representing a dimensionless point. Then the teachings are, even though they are in form, are esoteric. And we need the circle to direct us to the center point. If we don't have a circle, we have no way of finding the center point. Do you see what I'm talking about? If you look over here and I say, where's the center over here? You don't know. It's only if I draw a circle, oh, then we find there is a center point. There's another interesting aspect to this diagram, this way of diagramming things, and that is that if we listen to the exoteric teaching, and if it is in fact pointing beyond itself and therefore is an esoteric teaching, and we follow that direction, and we arrive at the dimensionless center point of the circle, we know what all points are like because all points are dimensionless. And from a geometric point of view, of course, all space is made up of points, dimensionless points. And all figures are made up of dimensionless points, lines, triangles, circles, everything. So once you know the true nature of one dimensionless point, you know the true nature of everything. So this represents the relationship between uh, exoteric and esoteric forms of religion. Now, from a mystic's point of view, 
mystics will criticize their fellow religionists who lose track of that center point and then take the circumference to be the absolute and don't use the circumference as a teaching to find the center. We know this by the name of dogma, for instance. In many traditions, there is a dogma. It is written. It is the word of God. Therefore, it is absolutely true. The Buddhists have a nice way of putting this, and they say that all the teachings, including the highest teachings that the Buddha gave, are fingers pointing to the moon. They are to direct your attention to the moon. So don't make the mistake of taking the finger to be the moon. And in the Abrahamic Western traditions, we could uh, talk about this in terms of idolatry. Don't worship the words. The words only point you to the transcendent truth that transcends the words. So this is a little uh, background, a definition of terms, before we launch into our discussion about the relationship of exoteric and esoteric Christianity. When I speak of esoteric Christianity, I am talking about teachings that point beyond themselves. And when I speak of a purely exoteric Christianity, I'm speaking about a Christianity that does not point beyond itself. And this would be true of any religion. We're just going to happen to be talking about Christianity this morning. So, uh, oh, let me say one other thing here. There's another important difference. In exoteric religion, it is enough to believe in the teachings. And if you believe in the teachings, then you will be saved. And you will be saved from what? From suffering and from death. And this is usually projected to occur after death. In other words, you believe in the teachings and you do good, good things. You follow the teachings in that sense. You obey them. And then when you die, then you will go to heaven and you will be saved. Esoteric teachings say, oh, you begin with belief, yes, but then you have to find out the truth for yourself. And this truth transcends our thoughts and our experience as we normally think of it. Experience as something that comes and goes, like an emotional experience, let's say, or some sort of vision, or some sort of uh, hearing voices or something like that. And it's called, technically, in the Western traditions that come from Greece, gnosis. Gnosis is the Greek term. It's the term you find in the Gospels as well. Gnosis means a direct, immediate apprehension of reality, ultimate reality, without the mediation of thought. Beyond thought, beyond experience. In the East, it's more often referred to as enlightenment, or realization, or something like that. And every mystical tradition has their own term for this kind of knowledge, transcendent knowledge. So it's very important here because we're talking about a different way of knowing things. A third way of knowing things, if we want to talk about experience, reason, and then gnosis, is a third way of knowing reality. So, then the question is, when we want to talk about Christianity, was Jesus a mystic? Now, a mystic is someone who has attained that gnosis, that direct realization of ultimate reality. 
a direct realization of God, if we want to put it in uh, the Abrahamic terms. God meaning not some big daddy in the sky, but God meaning ultimate reality, the source, the ground of everything that arises. And uh, arguments can be made one way or the other of whether Jesus was a mystic or not. But I'm not going to make that argument this morning. We'll take up the whole morning to make the argument. I am going to assume that Christ was a mystic. I'll touch on this a little bit in a moment, but I'm just going to take that as an assumption. And then the question arises, what happened to Christianity? Because we can look around, and there are Christians who do not think Christ was a mystic, who do not think that Christian teachings point to some uh, transcendent reality that can be known through a gnosis. Who just accept the teachings as the word of God, do what the Bible says, be good, when you die, you go to heaven. So what happened in Christianity? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, let me tell you, I am not a scholar. A scholar is someone who does original historical research. I am approaching this history from the perspective of a Gnostic, so I have a different perspective. But when I present this, this is a rough sketch of what might have been. It is a lot of speculation. As all history, particularly when we go back to the early days of Christianity, is a lot of speculation. Not only that, from a mystical point of view, all history whatsoever is created in the present. It's a story we tell ourselves about the past to explain why we are here today. There is no such thing as an absolute history that's fixed forever. And the next generation is going to tell any kind of history, whether it's history of religions or whatever, differently. And we now have histories of histories. It's quite fascinating to read them, how history changes according to what are the burning issues of the current day. So this is a caveat so that you don't mistake my words for being in any sense an absolute truth. This is one view, what might have been, and a story by which we can make sense of things. And that's really the point of these stories. So one view of this is Jesus was a mystic. But Jesus didn't necessarily start out being a mystic. Jesus started out, we know from uh, all the evidence we have, as being a disciple of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist seems to have been preaching the uh, coming of the Messiah, or at least the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent. And we have to put this in a little bit of a historical context. Because at that time, the Jews in Palestine were an oppressed people, and they were under the yoke of Roman rule. And the Romans were not only taxing them uh, heavily and so forth, but slowly but surely, Roman society was eating away at the traditional Jewish culture. This is a lot what's going on in the third world today. It's a sort of a cultural imperialism where people are losing their traditional values because they get interested in Coca-Cola and Rolex watches, and then along with that comes Western values and so forth, and they start to turn their backs on their traditional religions and values. Well, the very same thing was happening in Palestine. And so the Jews in Palestine were looking for some Messiah who would deliver them from Roman rule. And this 
uh, goes back to the, some of the prophecies of the Jewish prophets and so forth. That a Messiah would come, and the idea was this Messiah would come with supernatural power, but the Messiah would be a political leader who would literally overthrow the Romans and set up a independent, pure Jewish state as they look back to the time of David and Solomon when you know, the Jews had that kind of state. So this was a great expectation at the time and a great longing of the Jewish people at the time for the Messiah to come and deliver them from Roman rule. And there were a lot of prophets who were prophesying the coming of the Messiah, and there were also people who claimed to be the Messiah. So this was not unusual, what John was doing. This was part of the whole milieu, if we like. So one way to look at this or explain this is Jesus was a disciple of John's, and John was preaching the coming of the kingdom of God shortly, in the very near future. So everybody better get ready. They better repent. They better give up their Roman Hellenistic ways and return to their traditional religion. And then perhaps, and this is pure speculation, but perhaps when Jesus went out to the desert, perhaps he was on a kind of retreat, he woke up, he had a Gnostic awakening, and he saw that, yes, the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God was everywhere. You couldn't get away from the kingdom of God. This very world right here is the kingdom of God. This is right in line, by the way, with what mystics of other traditions have said. For instance, the Buddhists talk about the great perfection, realizing the great perfection. The Hindus talk about realizing this whole world is nothing but the leela of God, the play of God, as it is right now. Our perception that it's something else is our delusion. But in any case, if this is true, if this is where Jesus woke up, he comes out of the desert, but he has to speak in the terms of the religion of his time and place in order to communicate. So he starts preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. But what he means when he says it is at hand, it is right here. And how you wake up to it is by practicing the two great commandments which come from the Jewish tradition. And that is complete unconditional love, surrender to God, and total selfless love for your neighbor. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and with all thy soul. This is the first and great commandment. The second is life unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on this hangs all the law and the prophecies. This is the fundamental point. One of the clearest examples in the canonical Gospels of Jesus' teaching as a mystic comes from the Gospel of John. If you follow my teachings, then you are truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And there are a couple of interesting things about this. This was, of course, originally written in Greek, and the word know the truth is a derivative of gnosis, which in Greek meant this highest form of knowing, direct recognition of ultimate reality. And in this particular passage, Jesus is saying, A, if you follow my teachings, if you practice, you have to practice, then you will know the truth. You don't have to believe anything. You will know it. You will have gnosis. And that gnosis will free you 
From what? From sin. And then there's a little discourse that follows because the people who are talking to are confused. They think this is political freedom he's talking about. They say, well, we are free. We've been free since Moses led us out of bondage in Egypt. And he says, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, you are slaves to sin. And what is the wages of sin is suffering and death. So it's freedom from suffering and death. This is a very clear statement of a Gnostic. Now, there are other things in the Gospels that aren't so clear, to be fair. We're going to talk about them in a minute. But let's say that this is what Jesus was trying to communicate through his teachings. Now, like in other situations with other mystics of other traditions, not everybody got it. Some people got it, like Thomas. Now, Thomas wrote a gospel that was, as I mentioned earlier this morning, was dug up after the Second World War in the deserts of Egypt, part of the Nag Hammadi Library. It's a collection of sayings of Jesus. It has none of the miracle stories. It has none of the prophecies about the end of the world. It is a pure collection of sayings. And if you read it from a mystic's perspective, or if you, even if you know anything about mystics of other traditions, he's very clearly a mystic, a Gnostic in this particular gospel. His whole thing is about knowing, knowing the truth and so forth. It's very close in tone to this passage from John. Scholars believe that this collection of sayings, the Gospel of Thomas, was written about 50 CE. And that would mean they, uh, the Gospel of Thomas predates the canonical Gospels, which were written 60, 70, 80, 90. Now let me read you a passage from the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus' disciples said to him, When will the kingdom come? Jesus said, It will not come by expectation. They will not say, See there or see here. But the kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth, and men do not see it. Now that's very interesting. This is a clear statement that the kingdom is not something coming in the future. The kingdom is at hand, it's right here. It's at hand, it's so close to you. But we don't see it. Something veils it from us. Now, some of the disciples didn't get it. They were mystified by his teaching, and understandably so. Mystical teachings are quite mystifying. Mystics cannot communicate the ultimate truth. That's why it's called mysticism. And often their teachings are paradoxical and strange. But Jesus obviously had a lot of personal power. He spoke powerfully. He attracted people. He probably did perform miracles, healings, and so forth, which attracted, uh, uh, according to the Gospels, enormous crowds at times. But they're still trying to understand what he's talking about, given the milieu that they're living in and these things like expectations of a Messiah and so forth. Then, after his crucifixion, which shocked and horrified everybody, because if he was the Messiah, if he even was the great spiritual teacher, how could God let him be crucified? This was totally incomprehensible. Then they discover the body is missing, a number of them have these visionary experiences of a risen Jesus. And you can see how they might have started to reinterpret his teachings. Oh, he was talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. 
Only he wasn't talking about a political Messiah that was going to arise. He's talking about the second coming, which is going to be the end of the world. He's going to come back very soon. He said things like, if you understand these teachings, you will not taste of death. Well, they're expecting him to come very soon. I mean, you know, within the generation. So we start getting then an exoteric interpretation of Jesus' teachings. Now, let me read you just an example of this from Luke, Luke 17, 20 to 37. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, notice, so far, it's very close to Thomas, with one little exception. Here, it's the kingdom of God is within you. In Thomas, it's the kingdom of God is spread on the earth, and men do not see it. However, there's some controversy about this little passage, even among Christians today, because the Greek word for within is a rather ambiguous word. And it can mean the kingdom of God is present among you. And you can take that to mean Jesus is referring to himself. I am the kingdom of God. I am here among you. But you can also take it to mean, as Thomas took it to mean, the kingdom of God is present right now, here, everywhere, inside, outside. It's just everywhere. Now, it's interesting because Luke goes on to say, and he said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here, or see there. Go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall the Son of Man be in this day. And then he goes on with more prophecies about the coming of the Son of Man. Compares it to Lot and so forth and so on. So now we're getting to making this into a prophecy. Actually, when you read it, it doesn't quite follow from what he just said before. It feels like it's sort of stacked on there. Also, it's interesting, this business of the lighting up of the sky from one end to another. This is a perfect description of enlightenment. Mystics use this kind of metaphor all the time. It's like this sudden illumination, this flash. Everything is suddenly seen. And this is another one of these free-floating little quotes that you'll find in other Gospels that aren't necessarily part of any speech. But Luke is sort of trying to tie these sayings together here, make sense out of them. So the point is, here we have clearly a remembered saying or, or whatever of Jesus that starts off the same way. It's given a totally different spin by Luke than it is by Thomas. So we can see how some of the early Christians who did not really understand that Jesus is talking about waking up right now begin to see Jesus as a messianic figure who's going to come very soon. <clears throat> now, in the period right after this, there was no central authority. There were many Christian sects, starting off in Palestine, but spreading to Syria, to Egypt, spreading east, spreading west, to Greece, and then finally Rome itself. And this is, of course, one of the least known periods of Christianity, what actually was going on there. 
historians and scholars are still trying to figure this out today. But these different groups started to develop very different interpretations of Christ and what he was about. There were some major groups with huge followings, the Manichaeans and the Arians. These were later considered heresies by what developed to be the Orthodox Church. And then the whole group of Christians which come under the label Gnostic. And you'll read about the Gnostics of early Christianity. They weren't necessarily all enlightened followers of Christ. The term Gnostic has uh, now come to be applied by scholars to a whole body of literature that ranges wildly. The Gospel of Thomas is included in that, but many of these Gnostic sects develop their own kind of cosmology, which is very dualistic and not necessarily Gnostic the way I'm using the word Gnosis here. So the point here is there are many different kinds of uh, Christianity, many different interpretations of what Jesus was saying, what this was all about. Then all these uh, different Christian sects were also competing with a whole bunch of other sects that had come into the Roman Empire from the East. The cults of Sibyl and Isis and Mithra. At one time, Mithraism was much larger than Christianity. If you were going to bet, let's say around 100 CE, on what was going to be the new religion of the empire, the odds would have been for Mithraism. And they were all competing, and they were competing in a spiritual vacuum because the old Roman gods had really lost their true spiritual power. They had become sort of... uh, powers of nature you could pray to to perhaps get you know wealth and fame and things like that but the spiritual heart of the old pagan roman religion had really dried up and people were searching for something and that's why these cults coming in for the east were so uh, popular not unfamiliar perhaps something like what's going on today in america and we have all these cults coming in from the east Because for at least some people in this culture, there is a spiritual vacuum. The old religions don't work. In any case, between the time of Jesus' death, about 33 CE, to around 400, was a time of competition with these other cults, but also Christianity consolidating itself. And ultimately, Christianity won over the Roman world, for two reasons. One reason, it adapted itself to Roman styles. And most of the cults did this, by the way. You know, they, they started painting uh, Jesus and the disciples to look like Romans instead of like Jews. You know, we complain about this today. You know, the blonde, blue-eyed Jesus, and he's very much a, a goy, and of course, he probably didn't look like that at all. But this is going on from the beginning, and this goes on in, in all traditions. You know, Buddhas in the Far East portrayed as an Asian with, you know, typical Mongol features, uh, the narrow eyes and so forth, and he was a, a Hindu, he was an Indian, and he looked much more like uh, those, you know, Amit Goswami, for instance, or somebody like that. So this is not unusual. But what Christianity did do that the other Eastern cults didn't do, it began to adopt its theology, or let's say assimilate it, to the most sophisticated philosophies of the Roman Empire, which were Greek philosophies that came down from Plato and Aristotle. 
So it'd be something equivalent of a religion today beginning to interpret itself in terms of science. Because this meant that the educated Romans could understand Christianity and could be converted to Christianity. The initial reaction of the educated Romans to Christianity was these were insane, superstitious cults. They believed in a, a resurrected Messiah of some sort. They didn't understand at all. To them, it was just you know, the lowest form of superstition. But through uh, people like Clement and Origen, uh, people who uh, had been educated in Hellenic culture, they began to interpret Christianity in terms of Greek philosophy and particularly in terms of Platonic Greek philosophy. And Platonic Greek philosophy was mystical at its core. Now, we have to back up a little bit here, because I have to explain something about Plato and Aristotle, because they come back to play a part in this great drama later. Plato and Aristotle were Greek philosophers who lived uh, around, let's see, Plato was about 400 B.C., and Aristotle was his student, so 50 years later or so. And Plato's philosophy aimed at gnosis. It used reason to analyze the world and so forth, but the whole idea was reason was a stepping stone to eventually a Gnostic realization, which Plato described himself as like a fire being lit in the soul that never burns out. This, again, this image of lightning and lighting. Aristotle, his student, disagreed with Plato because he didn't understand or he didn't attain this gnosis. And he said, that part of Plato we reject. That the truth or reality can be understood through reason and through experience. We can reason our way to understanding reality and we should look at experience. He was uh, one of the first to say, let's actually go out and look at nature, and he classified various animals and so forth. So, by choosing Plato here, the Christian philosophers were marrying Christianity to a very sophisticated, mystical cosmology. This was going on the first three, four hundred years of Christianity. Then, uh, several things happened. Uh, first of all, Jesus wasn't appearing in one generation, so they started pushing the second coming off to the end of time. So that sort of relieved that uh, basis of skepticism and doubt. The empire, the Roman Empire itself, was disintegrating, disintegrating politically. It was falling apart, and the barbarian uh, hordes coming down from northern Europe and sweeping across from uh, Central Asia were beginning to uh, wreak havoc in the provinces and threatening the empire itself. And the empire itself as a culture was disintegrating more importantly. You had all these different gods, people worshipping here and there, different values from quite different cultures. There are clashes, there's friction and so forth. So Constantine, who became emperor in around 300 uh, CE, looked at Christianity as a way, perhaps, of unifying this disintegrating uh, empire. The Christians had also begun to build a strong organization, a sort of state within a state, an organization of churches, 
with hierarchies, bishops and priests and deacons and so forth. They performed social functions. They took care of their own. They were great at charity. And not only did they take care of Christians, they took care of pagans as well, which impressed a lot of pagans. So you had this quite strong social organization arising as this empire is crumbling. So Constantine called together bishops from all these churches to the Council of Nicaea, in 325, they came up with the Nicene Creed, among other things, and they systematized the dogma of the church. This is what we believe. They had a lot of fights and controversies. They didn't just all come together in agreement. But they finally came up with a statement about this is what Christians believe. So now the what came to be eventually be called the Catholic Church or the Latin Church is taking shape. And these other than interpretations of Christianity, the Manichaeans, the Arians, the, uh, the Gnostic sects, are being rejected now as heresies. And Constantine put his stamp of approval on the doctrines of the Council of Nicaea and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. It was shortly after that that Augustine finished this work of Platonizing Christianity assimilating the Christian teachings into this Platonic cosmology, this mystical cosmology. And we have to pause for a minute to look at Augustine, because this is very important. Augustine, before he became a Christian, had studied Plato. He was steeped in Plato. And not only that, he himself had had a, what I call a Gnostic flash. That is, he had a glimpse through this direct gnosis of reality. It didn't stick for him. But let me read you what he wrote. I entered into the innermost part of myself, and I saw with my soul's eye an unchangeable light shining above this eye of my soul and above my mind. It was not the ordinary light which is visible to all flesh. No, it was not like that. He who knows truth knows that light, and he who knows that light knows eternity. And then in the flash of a trembling glance, my mind arrived at that which is. Now indeed I saw your invisible things understood by the things which are made visible. The he here refers to God. But, he goes on, I had not the power to keep my eyes steadily fixed. In my weakness I felt myself falling back and returning again to my habitual ways, carrying nothing with me except a loving memory of it and a longing for something which may be described as a kind of food, of which I had perceived the fragrance, but which I was not yet able to eat. So, he knows what the message of Christianity is. At least he's had a glimpse of it. And, in the paradigm he constructed, the goal of Christian life is gnosis whether in this life or the next. Salvation does not come by belief in doctrines and dogmas. There's a lot of doctrine and dogma in Augustine, but all of this is to direct you to a gnosis. And even if you don't have it in this life, his conception of heaven is you will have it after death. And that's what frees us from suffering. He writes specifically about belief being just a stepping stone. I'm going to read you something else by Augustine. For believing is one thing and understanding another, 
and we must first believe whatever great and divine matter we desire to understand. Our Lord himself exhorted those whom he called to salvation to first believe. But afterwards, when he spoke of the gift itself that was to be given to believers, he did not say, this moreover is eternal life that you believe, but this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou sent. And again, he says to believers, seek and ye shall find. But one cannot speak of that being found which is believed without knowledge. Wherefore, following our Lord's precepts, let us seek earnestly. For what he himself encourages earnestly to seek, that same shall we find by his showing, so far as such things may be found in this life and by such as we. For these things are seen more clearly and known more perfectly by those better than we, even while they live on earth, and certainly by the good and pious after this life. So the point is, in Augustinian Christianity, all the exoteric trappings of it, and there were many he wrote about, rites and rituals and the power of the mass and things like that, it all leads to this gnosis. This is the ultimate goal of Christian life. This is what constitutes salvation. Now, the Augustinian paradigm became the paradigm of the Catholic Church in the West for the next 1,000 years. This is something we, have, in our time, have lost sight of. So, the early church was not antagonistic to mysticism at all, or to mystics. Mysticism was not the religion of the masses, of the peasants, and the church fathers, the church hierarchy, understood this perfectly clearly. Not everybody was expected to go out and be a Gnostic. But it didn't mean that they denied Gnosis. And from their point of view, the people believed a more exoteric form of religion, but the idea is they would die, and when they died, they would have this Gnosis. That would be their salvation. So from... 400 to 800, right after Augustine wrote, the Roman Empire continued to disintegrate. The barbarian invasions began. It's hard for us to imagine what that period must have been like, but we could think of uh, huge gangs of hell's angels riding through Eugene, burning, looting, pillaging, raping, without any police force to stop them. I'm serious. Law and order was breaking down everywhere. And there were a series of uh, emperors, some who were uh, more competent than others. And, and there would be a push to sort of try to revive and restore the empire, and then another wave of invasions was common and break down more and more and so forth. Several things happened. First of all, the empire split between east and west. So one center was in Constantinople, and the other center was in Rome, and this is the beginning of the split between the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church, which I'm not going to talk about at all here. But it became a political divide. The communications broke down and so forth. Eventually, the Bishop of Rome became the Pope, as we know the Pope today. The more and more power was centralized in the See of Rome. And as the empire began to break down, political power began to fall to local warlords who eventually became the nobility of feudal Europe. 
<coughs> this was a situation of tremendous chaos. On top of this, there was, by the way, waves of bubonic plague sweeping through and so forth. And the church now remained the only institution that had influence throughout this whole region. And it was called upon more and more to perform social and even political functions. We sometimes have the idea that greedy uh, Catholics, you know, jumped in and grabbed power or something like that. Quite the reverse is actually the case. For instance, one of the emperors had to draft the bishops in Spain to take over the governorships of the provinces because plague had wiped out the administrations. The church had educated people now, you see, because they had converted to this platonic paradigm. People who knew how to read and write, they could administrate these things. Augustine himself is a very good example. Augustine wanted to retire and be basically a monk. He wanted to have a little monastic community. And he went to visit a friend of his in Hippo. Hippo is a fairly large town in Africa. Augustine was from Africa. And they just lost their bishop. And he arrived and he was going to give a speech because he was an educated Christian. And they heard him speak and they locked the doors and wouldn't let him out and drafted him to be the Bishop of Hippo. And as the story goes, he wept because his whole dream of leading a, you know, a spiritual life was down the tubes. So in many ways, the church was drafted to play a social and political role that other religions in other parts of the world have not uh, had to uh, face. In any case, from about 800 to 1300 CE, a new Christian civilization begins to take form in Europe itself. In 800, Charlemagne, who was a Frankish king, was crowned Emperor of the West by Pope Leo. And Charlemagne built an empire throughout France and brought the Germans under the Christian umbrella. But more importantly, from our point of view, he also was very interested in reviving learning and in standardizing Christian worship and literature and so forth. So he collected the best minds of his generation, great librarians, and he began to build these wonderful monastic libraries trying to preserve some of the classics of the past. And they started to systematize the Christian religion. Now, in this period, around 850, mystical Christianity got a tremendous boost. And that was the uh, arrival in the West of a work by Dionysius, later called in the Western Church, St. Dennis, who was thought to be Dionysius the Arapagate. Dionysius the Arapagate is mentioned as a disciple of Paul's in the Acts, I think. And Paul, of course, was considered one of the great founders of the church. So this work had tremendous prestige because it was supposed to have been written directly by a disciple of Paul's. Later they found <coughs> out it was probably written by somebody in the 6th century, not a disciple of Paul's. But they didn't know that at the time. Now, Dionysius is absolutely clearly a mystic who aims at this direct realization of the truth. Now, I'm going to read you a passage from him. In the diligent exercise of mystical contemplation, leave behind the senses and the operations of the intellect, and all things in the world of being and non-being, that thou mayest arise by unknowing toward the union 
with him who transcends all being and all knowledge. For by the unceasing and absolute renunciation of thyself and all things thou mayest be born on high through pure entire self-abnegation into the super-essential radiance of the divine darkness. So these works, which were translated by a mystic, John Scotus Eregina, became a tremendous influence on the development of Christian mysticism from that point on. Meanwhile, Charlemagne's uh, empire then fell apart. Europe went back to a series of warring states, local princes fighting each other. And again, the one uh, institution that could have tried to rise above all this was the papacy, which sought to be a moral arbitrator and was sometimes successful. The one weapon the papacy had was excommunication. And if you excommunicated a king, it meant his subjects were no longer duty-bound to serve the king because he was not a Christian, and this, this was a Christian land. So kings were not happy about being excommunicated. And occasionally uh, the church could uh, wield this moral power and settle these disputes and so forth. But in the process, the church then became more and more politicized itself. And it had this huge administration to run. It needed money. It started to become like a state in itself. And in fact, it did become a state in itself in competition with the worldly states of Europe. So this is just a little a background here that is going to become important. But through all this, this stream of mysticism with this new influence of Dionysius began to flow through the 13th and 14th centuries. That's the 12, 1400s. This is considered the golden age of Christian mysticism. They're popping up all over the place. St. Francis, in the uh, early part of, well, 1210, I think about when he established his order, the Franciscan order, and St. Bonaventure became head of it in the next generation. St. Bonaventure wrote The Soul's Journey to God, which is clearly a mystical tract about how you contemplate and arrive at this gnosis that is beyond mind, beyond thought, direct illumination of the divine. Uh, the 1300s saw the production of The Cloud of Unknowing by an English author whom we don't know who it is, uh, anonymous author. Here's what this author writes. The mind which sees and experiences God as he is in his naked reality is no more separate from him than he is from his own being. For the spirit which sees and experiences him is one with him it sees and experiences because they have become one in grace. This is also the era of the uh, two Catherines from Italy, Catherine of Siena and Catherine of Genoa. Catherine of Siena, by the way, was made a doctor of the church. These were people sanctioned by the church. This is the point I'm trying to make here. These were not considered heretics. Catherine of Genoa writes, He is above and beyond whatever may be felt or conceived. Such knowledge does not come through the intellect or will, as I have said. It comes from God with a rush. Again, clearly a statement of Gnosis. It's also the era of Meister Eckhart. <clears throat> he went over the top a little bit. Now, you see, you couldn't deny church dogma or doctrine. You had to be, walk a little bit of a line here. 
Meister Eckhart, however, wrote things like this. Then I received an impulse that will bring me above all the angels. Together with this impulse, I received such riches that God, as he is God, cannot suffice me. For in this breaking through, I received that God and I are one. Then I am what I was, and then I neither diminish nor increase. For I am then an immovable cause that moves all things. Wow, he's saying, I and the Father am one. He's going back to what Jesus said. And he's saying, oh, anybody can discover I and the Father am one. Well, that was a little bit too much. And the Inquisition condemned 13 of the points of his teaching. And uh, fortunately, perhaps, he died before he could be called before the Inquisition. And the, his choice would have been to recant or, or else. And he never had to make that choice. He was never put in that position. But even though his uh, propositions were condemned as heresy, he was tremendously influential in a whole stream of mysticism that spread through Germany and the Rhineland. They're called the Rhineland mystics. Great mystics, Tauler and Rosie Brook and uh, Hildegard of Biggin and the Beguines and so forth, all came out of his teachings and his inspiration. However, now we're in for a big sea change. Up until now, the church has been not only not antagonistic to mystics, but has honored and celebrated its mystics. But now something happens, a crucial turning point here. During this whole period, over in the Mideast, Islamic civilization had blossomed, way ahead of what was going on in Europe. And the Muslims had preserved much of the literature of the Greeks that was lost to the West. Scientific literature, philosophy, mathematics, and all that. And these works began to reach the West. And most importantly were the lost works of Aristotle. And they came with commentaries. And one of the most important was a Muslim philosopher named Ibn Rushd. Rushd. Ah, Rushd. He lived from 1126 to 1198. He was known in the West as Averroes. He lived in Muslim Spain, and his works came into Europe via Spain. And they were translated, and particularly his commentaries on Aristotle. And his commentaries on Aristotle showed that faith and reason could not be reconciled. And this started a tremendous controversy among Christian theologians, because they obviously saw this applied not only to Islam, but it would apply to Christianity if this was true. And he was using Aristotelian logic to prove this. So the Christian theologians all jumped on the bandwagon here, and they were trying to prove or disprove Aristotle. Now you see, this is why I had to mention Aristotle before, because Aristotle is coming back into the picture. Aristotle is not a mystic. Aristotle's view of uh, knowledge is that it can be attained through reason and experience. Nothing about gnosis in this. And into this fray, now back in the Middle Ages in Christianity, jumped Thomas Aquinas. This is the 13th century. And he used Aristotelian logic 
to sort out what could be proved by reason and what had to be relied on uh, as a matter of faith. For instance, God's existence could be proved by reason, according to Aquinas. But the Trinity could not be proved by reason. God is three persons. That had to be relied on as a matter of faith. Now, in all this, he's sorting out then within the Christian theology uh, what is faith and what is logic, what is uh, philosophy, and separating them. And although Aquinas himself acknowledged mystics, the whole emphasis of his work was on this faith and reason, the relationship between faith and reason. And he worked out this wonderful neo-Aristean cosmology that in the church came to supplant Augustine's Platonic mystical cosmology. And so the emphasis shifted now from gnosis, from the vision of God, to a theology that you could argue parts of through reason, and the rest you had to accept on faith. Big difference here. And now there are a lot of historical influences pushing the church in this direction. The first thing is, 1517, Martin Luther, a Catholic priest in Germany, starts the Protestant Reformation, breaks from the church. Now, we do have to understand the church up until this time had been going through periods of corruption and internal reform, trying to reform itself, becoming corrupt. It had sunk to what we, from a spiritual point of view, would consider the depths of corruption. The popes were living like worldly princes. They had mistresses, you know, they wore ermines and jewels and so forth. They went hunting, they led armies in the field. Uh, you know, you would hardly think this is the vicar of Christ on earth. <coughs> Worse from the common people's point of view, because most people never got to Rome to see the pope, the pope had to support this great empire. And one of the ways it did it was to sell indulgences that you could buy these slips of paper where you got remission from your sins. So you could pile up a lot of sins, and then you could go down to the church, and you could buy your way out of hell is basically what you're doing, or buy your way out of, of purgatory. Well, this was pretty obvious to a lot of Christians that this was not what Christianity was really supposed to be all about. So Martin Luther said, first of all, you don't need a priest to mediate between man and God. You just need Jesus. Uh, if we don't need a priest, we don't need the Catholic Church. The other most important thing he did is he began a movement of translating the Bible, which had been written in Latin, into the vernacular languages of Europe. He translated to German, other people translated to English, to French, and so forth. Prior to this time, most people, of course, were illiterate and uneducated, and they certainly didn't speak Latin. All they knew about their religion came through the priests. And the church itself had begun to realize how dangerous the Gospels are. Because if you read the Gospels and look how the Pope is living, you see a huge contradiction. So it was illegal to translate the Bible into vernacular languages, so anybody just could read it and decide for themselves. So Luther unlocked that secret, so to speak, and once the cat was out of the bag, everybody started translating it. And then anybody who was educated in their own language, at least, they didn't have to know Latin, could pick up the Bible and you could read what Jesus said about poverty and things like that. Well, 
this opened a floodgate of interpretation. Now all kinds of interpretations of what this meant. But it also encouraged a kind of literalism and fundamentalism. So we started getting very literalist interpretations of the Bible uh, as a reaction to all this corruption and this heavy uh, canopy of dogma that the church had built up. But mysticism is getting lost in all this. And in fact, Luther himself was anti-mystical. Here's what Luther wrote about Dionysius. He says, I admonish you to shun like the plague that mystical theology of Dionysius and similar books, because they taught that humans can converse and deal with the inscrutable eternal majesty of God in this mortal flesh. Oh no, you can't approach God in this mortal flesh. God for Protestants became completely transcendent. And any idea of a mystical relationship with God, for most Protestants, became a no-no. That's not always true. Uh, the founder of the Quakers, George Fox, was a mystic. And you read his work, and he's discovered the spirit from which all these teachings issue. Directly he's discovered it. He writes about that. Then the uh, Protestants split up, and again, into many sects. You know, the Calvinists, the Anabaptists, and uh, uh, so forth and so on, the Puritans and whatnot. And this caused a counter-reaction on the part of the Catholic Church, called the Counter-Reformation. And the Catholic Church called this Council of Trent, ran between 1545 and 1563, the council was called for two reasons. First of all, to reform the church. The church knew they had to reform. I mean, they knew why the Protestants were rebelling, and they were going to continue to lose adherence unless they did. And they did reform a lot. They got rid of the practice of indulgences and things like that. But in the process, they became even more dogmatic. They had to define their dogmas and their doctrines in relation to what the Protestants were saying. So you could tell who was a heretic and who was not. So they became more entrenched. I'm trying to give you a, a feel of how historical forces are playing on the development of Christianity and how people are forced into positions. And in all this process, you know, mysticism is receding from the horizon. So then the church became the church militant. Their task was to stop this spread of this Protestant heresy. And the Protestants themselves became just as dogmatic, the Calvinists and so forth. Each one thought they had discovered the truth, the absolute truth, this exoteric interpretation of the Bible. And this opened a horrendous period in European history. The wars of religion run roughly from uh, 1556 to 1648. And they were a series of wars that broke out between Catholics and Protestants that affected all of Europe. These were vicious, vicious, horrendous wars. These fanatical religious wars ripped Europe apart because each side, when they won, was merciless to their enemy. Massacres were a common practice of the day. Just to give you one example, one of the most famous is the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day in 1572. By 1572, the Huguenots, which were a form of Calvinists, had become um, quite sizable in France. I think there was something like 10% of the population or more. And particularly, I think it was in the southern France, they actually dominated. And they had won over nobles, and they had set up a, almost like a little separate kingdom. And for a while, they were on tolerable terms with the Catholics. 
In fact, uh, at this time, King Charles IX was king of France, and he had Huguenot nobility visiting him in Paris, staying with him, and knew his family and so forth. And he unleashed at the instigation of his mother, I hate to say this, but <laughs> and unleashed a slaughter of Huguenots that went on for three or four days in Paris, spread to the provinces, and up to 30,000 people perished in just a few days. Men, women, and children. 30,000 doesn't sound perhaps that much to us today where we have machine guns and, and bombs and things like that. But when you're dealing with swords and single-shot muskets, that's a lot of people to kill in a few days, you know? So just one example of things that went on all through Europe. Now, again, let me just mention, the stream of mysticism did continue to flow a little bit in Spain. Spain was, for the most part, spared the Protestant Reformation. It never really got to Spain. We have Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. They thrived in Spain, but even there, they were now under suspicion. Uh, Teresa of Avila's works were shipped directly to the Inquisition, who read it very closely for errors. John of the Cross was actually imprisoned and tortured in Toledo, and he escaped and he fled to Andalusia. This whole period, though, of the wars of religion produced a reaction among intellectuals of Europe of horror and disgust at the bloodshed and fanaticism that religion had unleashed. And much of our attitudes today go back to this period of time. It's like a historical memory we carry with us. And the intellectuals would look and see that this is what Christianity produces. Who wants it? And these attitudes are reflected, particularly in the formation of the British Royal Society. And the British Royal Society was one of the first institutions that really was promoting what at the time was called natural philosophy, but that is science and technology and so forth. And the early members wrote about, they gathered together specifically and turned their attention to science because it was a place where they could disagree and not have to kill each other. That science didn't arouse these horrendous passions that these fanatical religious arguments were arousing. And they began even to look to science as a new paradigm on which people could agree. Because nobody could agree about religion. So the wars of religion were part of what stimulated the interest in new science and a looking to something beyond religion, a way to make sense of the world. Eventually, the wars of religion were ended with the Peace of Westphalia. After a hundred years, they came to the conclusion, whatever the prince's religion, that that would be the people's religion. So if you were a Duke of Saxony and you were Protestant, your people would be Protestant. Nobody would try to convert them. And so they came to the sort of uneasy peace. And then we come to the last period here. And that is 1700, approximately to 1800, the birth of the European Enlightenment. And having nothing to do with spiritual enlightenment, as they saw it as intellectual enlightenment. After this experience of the wars of religion, and after being turned off by religion, there was this movement, again, among intellectuals to resurrect the old Greek materialist paradigm, which had been rediscovered as part of this influx of classical material from Greece that came by way of the Arabs. And here was a way of looking at the world that did not include God or only included God as a clockmaker and creates everything in the beginning, winds it up, but doesn't really interfere. 
And it made quite a bit of sense. And particularly Copernicus's and Kepler's and Newton's mathematical discoveries, you could think of these mathematical equations as applying to little particles and things that moved around. And it seemed, uh, it seemed rather simple, very clear, dispassionate, and a way to look at the world that, you know, avoided all this stuff. There was another factor involved here, however. It wasn't just intellectuals experimenting with science and a new worldview. There was a rising class of capitalists, known by the French term the bourgeoisie, and they were gaining more and more real power. They were amassing wealth through trade and, and so forth, but they had no political power. The political power remained in the hands of the kings and the nobles, and so this political tension was rising because... You know, power is actually where the money is, and so these people have more and more money, but there's no way to exercise the political power. So, particularly in France, there's this revolutionary movement building up to overthrow the king and the nobility, and the philosophy of the bourgeoisie became then materialism and science and so forth, not only because science, of course, you could see how you could apply it to production and make more money and more things, but also because the church was supporting the nobility and the kings. And so one of the most important things that the revolutionaries had to do was undermine the moral and, and uh, spiritual authority of the church. And so they began attacking Christianity, superstition and whatnot. And it's important to see that this has a political dimension. It's not just pure objective science here. Well, you know, by this point, mysticism is way back on the back burner. Nobody is interested in mysticism or gnosis or anything else. And in the new materialist paradigm, the only valid knowledge is scientific knowledge. From experience, you gather facts, and then you make an intellectual theory, and that is knowledge, period. And so this whole idea of a gnosis or a direct apprehension of an ultimate reality is the worst kind of superstition. Eventually, uh, 1789, the beginning of the French Revolution, the bourgeoisie overthrows the old regime, the nobility and kings in France. Over the 19th century, the revolution spreads throughout Europe. There are other overthrows or at least accommodations with the local aristocracy, but along with this spreads this secular culture. And at least particularly among the intelligentsia, the intellectuals, religion is now considered superstition. Everybody's looking to science. Science has promised paradise on earth instead of paradise in heaven. All these miracles of science are going to transform the earth into paradise. Everybody's going to have as much as they want. Everybody will be happy. Don't worry about going to heaven. And that just about brings us up to the present. Uh, we just say that uh, starting with the 20th century, people began to question, is this materialist paradigm actually going to bring us this paradise on earth that was promised? First of all, there was the horrendous slaughter of the First World War, where the technology of science was put to use to kill machine guns and tanks and bombs and poison gas. That left everybody quite horrified. Uh, then there's the nuclear weaponry developed in the Second World War. And, and, of course, today we face all sorts of things like our rivers and air being poisoned by toxins, global warming, ozone disappearing, and whatnot. So we're not quite so sure whether this materialist scientific paradigm is really going to bring us paradise on Earth, or perhaps something uh, very uh, destructive and terrifying. But I just want to 
make this overall point. If we look at this history, we see not that Christianity has been this horrible exoteric religion that's always persecuted their mystics and not. We really see a kind of curve. Come Augustine, this rise of the golden age of mysticism and then a falling off. And we could also, from the time of Aquinas, put another curve in here with the rise of an exoteric form of Christianity and from the Protestant Reformation, two streams. Although I must say, I think the Catholics have done a better job of at least recognizing that that still is in their tradition. And in fact, in Catholicism, there's a revival today of interest in mystical and contemplative techniques. So I just wanted to sort of try to put this into some sort of perspective. All religions undergo this kind of ebb and flow of awareness of the mystical core of their traditions, not just Christianity. We have, in the last 50 years, tended to get the creme de creme, the mystical creme de creme, of Eastern religions. We get these great works of Buddhism and Hinduism and so forth. They are not necessarily the religions practiced by the common people of those countries. Zen is a very good example. Zen Buddhism was a religion of the elite in Japan. It was never the majority religion in Japan. It was never the majority form of Buddhism in Japan. The majority form of Buddhism in Japan was pure land Buddhism. Pure land Buddhism is you believe faithfully in Amitabha Buddha, you say Amitabha Buddha's name with devotion, and you are born into a pure land. In that sense, it's, you know, very exoteric. The Zen tradition itself went through periods of corruption. So there was a period, for instance, when the samurai nobles were supporting the Zen institutions with donations and so forth, and sending their kids to them and expecting that their kids would get a certificate of enlightenment, you know, upon graduation. And then there were reformers in the Zen tradition. Ikikyu was a great reformer who had his awakening outside the monastic tradition and would go around with a a sword that had a bamboo blade, a ceremonial sword. You'd wear this at court, you see, so you had a nice jeweled handle, but the blade can't cut anything because it's bamboo. And he would go to these monasteries and he'd shake his sword and say, that's what your Zen is. It's like this bamboo sword. It's just ceremonial. So we shouldn't think that this uh, is just a Christian or a Western phenomenon. All religions go through this, and then they need to be revived by mystics coming along and saying, oh, wait a minute, stop looking at the outer circumference of the circle, look to the center. And then you'll have a period of revival and so forth. Once a religion loses its mystical core, then it begins to die, because that is the heart and soul of a religion, that center. So are there any questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so where is Christianity now? Are we in the, is it in the exoteric? Ah. You just said a big statement about it starts to fall apart if it stays there. So, where is it? Well, let me say, these mystics are the mystics we know of. Because they wrote books, and their books were published and promoted by people around them. So, when we look at this history, what we are not necessarily seeing is the experience of ordinary people we are seeing how the culture views its mystics. Do you see what I'm talking about? Now, you know, Christians haven't stopped having mystical experiences. 
Because anybody who treats their religion as at least something more than a uh, social convention is bound to have some kind of spiritual experience. So the question is, will the Christian religions, and we have to talk about it that way, start to recognize the value uh, of this, and that this is really, from mystic's point of view, what religion is all about, and start to then encourage it and point back to it, and really look back to their own history and tradition. Read Dionysius the Arapagan and see what's going on. That's how the form gets renewed. If it doesn't, and I don't have a crystal ball here, if it doesn't, Christianity will die out as a religion, but mysticism will never die out. Mysticism is beyond words, beyond speech, beyond forms, and it is the truth that's always available, and people are going to be discovering it, and then they will be speaking of it in whatever time, place they have to find themselves. Now, let me just say one other thing that I do think is different and interesting about our situation today. Never before have we had the beginnings of a global civilization. A global, at least at the technological level, where there's such rapid communication between societies. I mean, you can get on the internet and boom, you know, if you have a spiritual experience, you can tell somebody in China about it tomorrow. You know what I mean? Uh, and we've seen the spread of these various traditions. And when we have that kind of view, we see them all sort of laid out for us, then we can do what Toynbee suggested our great task for the next era is. We look at them and we, by comparing and by seeing, we see what are the essential points and what are cultural accretions that may have been appropriate to some society at that time and that place, but no longer quite work. And then through this process of cross-comparing and so forth, we begin to pull out and distill what is essential, what is essential in the teachings, what is essential in the practices. And so we may end up with a new mystical stream that honors all the forms of mysticism that went before, draws on them, but has a fundamental understanding that what we're all aiming for can't be put into words anyway, so no point in killing ourselves over the fact that we express it differently. You see what I mean? Long answer to your question. I hope it's helpful. Um, relating to the esoteric and exoteric, and I'm thinking about fundamental Christians who put big emphasis on form, and yet they want to know, have you been saved? Now, I, there's a form in that, but there's a mystical core in that that's, that's a, like a gnosis thing. Well, I have not had the experience of being saved, so I can't talk directly. But it seems to me that the experience of being saved is an experience of uh, a genuine appearance of the divine within you. And, and that for Christians, it's in the form of Christ, a genuine experience of that. My only response would be, that's great, but it's the first step. It's not the end. This is an opening. See, uh, Hindus have this experience. They call it the vision of Krishna, for instance, or whatever deity you happen to be a devotee of. And many Hindus want the vision of the deity. That's like a, a high mark in their religious life. 
And mystics like Ramana Maharshi come along and they say, that's great, but don't stop with that because that vision of the deity is still the deity in form. Go beyond form. Don't get fixated on that. Don't get attached to that. Particularly if it comes as an experience and then it passes. This is why a lot of people are saved and then the saving wears off, you know. <laughs> the evangelical revival movements that swept our country in the 19th century where these uh, you know, preachers would come to town and set up the big tent and they'd save a lot of souls that night. <laughs> and, and, and actually, William James writes about this. You know, the follow-up is they turned their lives around for a few months or whatever, but you know, slowly a lot of them went back to their old ways. But if you take it as an opening and you know that you can go deeper, then it's wonderful. The error of exotericism is to seize on anything short of gnosis and make that into an absolute. That's all. Otherwise doesn't matter where you start from, as long as you keep going. One more, I'll yes. make this one brief. You said <laughs> Jesus, he, uh, the second of the commandments was love for your neighbors as yourself. And uh, in Islam, there is like the first level to be a Muslim is to... Uh, a Muslim is defined as the one people are safe from his hand and his tongue. Mm -hmm. You see, so then the believer, which is a higher level, which is the one who you don't become a believer until you love your, for your brother what you love for yourself. And I wonder when you look in mysticism, where the idea where there is no difference between you and others. And you see yourself in others. I wonder if that's the the whole idea with like in Jesus. Uh... It is. You've just given the stepping stone of how a path progresses. The first thing is, uh, at least do no harm. Make sure other people are safe from your hand and your tongue. And it's interesting to say tongue, too, because sometimes we think as long as we're not beating somebody up, we're not doing harm. But what comes out of our mouth is very often doing a lot of harm. So that's the first step. Stop acting at this totally self-centered way that is harmful to others. Then the second step is, yes, you treat others as you would want to be treated. That's another you know, Christian teaching. But why? All this is leading to a realization that fundamentally there is no difference between us. And as long as we're acting as though there was, that is our delusion. We are not seeing reality Truly. And if we cannot see reality truly, we cannot behave in a realistic way. And if we behave unrealistically, we are bound to suffer. So it is the same. All right. Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. We've gone on a long time this morning. You're still welcome to stay and have some tea and check out our library if you haven't been here before. Until we see you again, peace to you all.